people preparing their wills get all cut up about like, oh, I want to name all five of my kids joint executors because I don't want one to feel left out. That's like the worst thing you could possibly do. Why? Because can't they just share the job and it makes it easier yeah, for all of them? Yeah, they can share it. They've got to agree on everything. Oh. How many kids do you have, Heather? Two. And, and, well, I don't know if they're old enough yet to have disagreements or do they agree on everything? <laughs> they probably wouldn't agree on whether or not they have disagreements. <laughs> I've got, yeah. I have five kids myself <laughs> to have like a situation, like trying to pick something to watch. And they're different age groups, so that comes into play, but like, forget it. Right. Very hard. Right. So yeah, kids can't agree. It's, it's the worst. It's way right. better to just name one and then an alternate, right? So um, if that person can't or won't, another backup. And you can have multiple backups, that's really easy. But having them do it jointly, yeah, that's like that's like you saying I hate you to them. <laughs>
we're always pleased to have you, Kim. Um, we were kind of all joking that, I, I mean, for our listeners, they won't be able to see it, but we're all wearing stripes today, and that was not planned. So um, that's kind of a fun fact about today's, <laughs> about today's episode. I don't know what it says about our mood, but someone can probably tell us what, what stripes me. Um, so we're here together today, and we're going to pick Evan's brain about wills and estates and estates planning. Um, what's a will? Why might you need one? Um, so this is a topic that I actually often have questions about. Um, so I'm really excited to be able to be asking you questions uh, about this today. Um, so maybe I'll go first. Evan, do you... What is a will and do you need one? Should we start there? Is that too broad of an opener for you? <laughs> yeah, that is that is a great opener. Um, <laughs> what is a will and why do you need one? So first of all, a will, and it's a good question, Heather, because when I do estate planning, and usually I think when, when lawyers do estate planning, there's three documents here in Alberta that we that we prepare for our clients. A will is only one of them. The other two are a power of attorney and a personal directive. And um, we can talk about all those. The personal directive might be the least intuitive one because I think they call it different things in different jurisdictions. Personal directive deal, deals with decisions regarding your health care and like end of life type things and really anything that a guardian could do if a guardian was appointed by the court. And a personal directive can only come into effect when you become incapacitated, mentally incapacitated. Okay. Um, whereas a power of attorney deals with finances while you're still alive and can be immediate. It, it can be triggered by becoming incapacitated. Um, and so in that way, it's a little different because uh, if you think about it, if you're, uh, as you get older, Maybe you don't want to be the one always going to the bank and you have a child that will help you out. You don't have to be mentally incapacitated before someone can act under that power, unlike the personal directive. And then to answer the question that you actually asked, what is a will? Mm -hmm. A will is a document that deals with your estate. Um, and so that's your, all of your possessions uh, when you die. And... Uh, it also deals with, uh, can deal with guardianship as well if you have minor children. So you can name um, guardians in your will. Um, you can also do that in personal directive as well. So that's something to know. Um, okay. So a will is a very important document if you have children, minor children. It's very, very important because... Well, Heather, you have children, uh, yeah. and if, heaven forbid, something happens to both you and your husband, who's going to take care of your kids? I want names. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, and that's interesting because I'm going to make a very, uh, I'm going to make a confession that I don't have a will. And as Heather. a lawyer, I know it's preposterous, <laughs> isn't it? What? I have kids. I'm a lawyer. And it's something that just, <laughs> Evan is rubbing his face right now with both hands. He cannot believe what he's just heard. Uh, I mean, I appreciate the importance of them, but 
it's the kind of thing where I think it's difficult for people. It's not a fun topic to think about. It's probably not fun money to spend. Um, and then you kind of have to think about these hard decisions that, you you know, you're trying to make about your kids and your finances and stuff once They're, you're gone. You know, and then Don't you have any friends that are lawyers that could hook you up? Well, I do. Fun money to spend. <laughs> oh boy! But it's really essential, right? So yeah, um, it's super I'm... important when you have children, because like I'm sure, I'm sure if you and your husband died unexpectedly and your kids were still under the age of eighteen, that you have family from one side or the other that would step up and everything would be it would be fine. But they would have to go to court. They would have to go to court and be appointed as guardians. Mm-hmm. Well, and what if they disagree? What if everybody wants the kids and then there's there's some choppy waters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what if it's that aunt that you hate <laughs> and who's so mean to kids and just wants to <laughs> family child benefit? The hypothetical aunt. I love all my yes. aunties. They're yeah. all lovely. But <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I yeah, absolutely. I'm sold. I'll, I'm gonna, I'll do your intake. I'll do your intake after we we finish the recording today. Okay, but... I'll send it to you. And we, okay. we, we, it's called the estate planning questionnaire. I'll send it. Okay, over. great. Um, yeah. So that's that's what a will is and mm-hmm. if you have children it's really important even if you don't have kids and you have property that you want to decide where it goes when you die a will is the way to do that um if you die and you don't have a will we just talked about what will happen with the kids somebody will have to go and get a guardianship order um and uh, I, I honestly don't know exactly what that would look like and how that will work uh, child welfare might get involved and I'm not sure it it really would depend on the situation Um, but you wouldn't need a court order to like start taking care of the kids but as soon as it comes to something like health care or anything else where the kids need a guardian to sign something then you do need to be appointed by some kind of legal document and um, if if there's no will then court's going to be the one to do that Mm -hmm. um So what happens then if you don't have a will, but you've got all this property? One question, we hear that a lot, and uh, a common misconception is that the government takes it. So the government may take it. It depends. There's there's a, a law called the Wills and Succession Act that details exactly what happens if somebody dies without a will. There's these rules. It's... um, it basically first goes to the closest, your property will first go to like the closest living relative. And then if they're not there, then it goes out to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. Um, I'm not gonna go into the details unless you really want me to, but uh, and if there's none of those relatives, like it, it doesn't just say forever. It's like there's, it's specifically names. And if none of those relatives are living, then it'll go to the state. Um, when you die without a will, that's called dying intestate. Okay. Um, and so you don't want that. You don't want to go intestate because it's just a hassle. And if there's a bunch of property, um, then someone's gonna have to go to court about it and become the administrator of the estate and then distribute it according to the rules. Anyways. 
And who, I mean, in those situations where you pass away without a will and somebody's got to sort out what's happening with your kids and or your stuff, who's paying for that? Does that come out of your estate? Is it some, you know, one of the poor souls that's left to pick up the pieces once you've passed away? Um, normally, it's going to be paid for by the estate. Yeah. Okay. Normally. So okay. Um, if somebody has to go to court to be named guardians, I'm not 100%, but it would make sense to me that the, that would be that the court would allow that to be paid out of the, out of the estate. Mm. Um, and when there's not a will, you're probably going to have to ask the court to, for, you know, that you're allowed to pay yourself out of the estate anyways. But I think they would. Um, and usually litigation having to do with the estate, often the estate pays for it. So, uh, okay. um, if the know. estate is not liquid, then what? Run away. <laughs> Run away. What uh, does the executor do? Oh, by the way, the executor is the person who reads the will, correct? And follows the instructions on the will. Is that, is that? Yeah. So the executor is the commonly the term used for both male and female now, but, uh, the old school is a female would be called the executrix which I think is pretty cool, but yeah, people, yeah. You know, people don't like those distinctions, but yeah, the executor is the person that's appointed by the will. It's, executor only exists if there's a will. And so the executor is a person named by the will as a person who's going to administer the estate. And so they're bound by the binding parts of the will. A will can also include parts that aren't binding that are wishes. And, and so there are instructions that the executor can follow, and usually they do follow them if they can. Um, an example of that would be how the body is disposed of. That's, that's a wish. Um, it's not enforceable because, you know, what if it's just not feasible to what you wanted? And, and what if it would deter from the rest of the estate? The executor has to take care of the body but how that's actually done is uh, up to the executor. But that being said, normally executors follow the wish because they're like, you know, who wants to dispose of a human body in some way other than that person wanted to be disposed of? Nobody, everybody's gonna do their best to, if they wanted to be buried, they're gonna bury them. If they wanted to be cremated, right. they're gonna cremate them. Right. Um, so sorry, Kim, uh, the executor, what was the question? Uh, so there's, so let's say the money is just tied up oh, waiting yeah. for things to happen, but we've got, we've got funeral bills to pay. What, what happens to the executor in that scenario? That's also a great question. And we're getting a little bit into a, an area of law that I don't actually practice, but I have, I'm aware of generally how it works because where I was trained, my, um, the person that trained me, the, that, that lawyer loves estate administration. So he, he does a lot of estate administration. And so I, you know, I got a front row seat and, and helped out on those files and have an idea generally how it works. So I can, I, I can answer these questions, but I don't actively practice in this, in this area. Um, so if things like, things like paying for the disposal of the body, those types of things can be paid for by the estate even before other things are sorted out normally. And there may be some process in the worst case scenario, you have to get an order from the court. Um, 
but usually it's the type of thing where the bank will release that money that's in a bank account that's otherwise waiting for probate when they're provided sorry in, in probate i'll answer the I'll, I'll explain what that is in a second but um the bank will normally release that money the estate's money to pay for the funeral um and so if you provide the receipts of like from a funeral home uh, or from wherever for disposing of the body the bank will will pay out of the estate but your other question was um, what if it's insolvent? Mm -hmm. So if it's insolvent, I, and I said run away. I'm not joking. Nobody has to take care of an estate. No, like there is not like, like you don't have to, if you're named under a will, you can say that's nice and all not going to do it. Uh, okay. Um, and so when somebody dies and your name is executor, one of the first things that you should do is go to a lawyer. And, and have an initial consultation. And because by the way, normally it, if there's money in the estate, normally the estate will pay for legal fees. Um, and it's a reasonable thing to, to pay for out of the estate, even if the will is silent on it, that's, you should have no problem reporting to the, to the beneficiaries that you got legal advice of how to best administer the estate. It's a good thing to do. So, um, if you go to see a lawyer and the lawyer sees that there is debt amounting to $100,000 and there's $50,000 of assets, um, do you like normally the advice I think you're going to get is uh, don't do it, just walk away. <laughs> because um, think about the, con the, the complications there. And now you're working for the, the people that hold the, uh, the creditors. Now you're working for the creditors. You're not working for any beneficiaries because beneficiaries are going to get nothing. Right. So let me, back up, let me back up for a sec to explain why that is. Um, there's like a hierarchy of things that get paid from the state. And before beneficiaries get paid, all the bills have to be paid. All the debts have to be paid. All the taxes have to be paid, um, and, and normally an executor to protect themselves before they'll pay a beneficiary anything, they're going to get a final tax bill. It's like a not bill, but like a, it's like a a comfort letter, if you will, from CRA saying, "Okay, we're done. This was the last tax year, and everything's been paid." Because who's on the hook if they screw that up? The executor is on the hook. Um. And so first, all the debts get paid. Um, in fact, uh, there is a requirement, because of the requirement to pay all the debts, one of the things that an executor can do to protect themselves from any risk is advertise in the newspaper. This is a thing that still happens. You advertise in the newspaper for creditors of the deceased. And I think you run it twice for two weeks each time, something like this. You run an ad, take out an ad in like the local paper. And then people have like a limited time to come forward, creditors. And if they don't, then that absolves the executor from their duty to search for all creditors. Um, 
Yeah, so that, I think that answers that question about if, if it's insolvent, don't but do I've it. Al I've also had, a, well, I've had actually a couple scenarios where money just hasn't been available. So waiting for probate, can't get access to the money, the executor's got to pay bills, and it is coming out of their pocket until they can free up that that capital. And, yeah. and to your point, you know, executors are taking on some potential liabilities or cash flow issues when they take on that role. So it's it's a pretty serious cap to to put on when you when you find out that you're you've been anointed executor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a couple things you brought up a couple things that I wanted that I, that um, I should mention. One is first let's tackle probate. Um, probate is some old-timey lawyery word that we use that um, just has to do with, with disposing of an estate. So when there's real estate involved or when there's a significant amount of money in the bank, it doesn't have to be that significant either. And the bank is the one that decides that they want this. Um, you're gonna have to get what's called a grant of probate if there's a will, or if there's no will, it's called a grant of administration. Um, and that grant basically says, if there's a will, it says, this is the will. And that makes the banks feel warm and fuzzy inside because now they know, you know, they're not going to be on the hook if they like give the money to the wrong person. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and land titles office just won't, just will not transfer any land of a deceased person without a grant of probate. They won't do it. And so that's an application that goes to court. Um, the will is submitted and there's all this other, it's really long, it's probably longer than it should be. They're in the middle of revamping all the court forms actually. So um, I think the idea is making it simpler because right now, uh, surrogacy forms, so that, that's, and I don't know why, okay, but surrogacy, the surrogate court is the court that deals with probate. Right. And their forms are just notorious for being terrible and like getting rejections. In fact, there's a little industry built on automating these forms production. That's how bad they are. Anyways, uh, so it's a little application that goes before the court where the will is attached and um, it can either be contested or uncontested. And if, if it's contested, there's different forms than if they're uncontested. And then the decision comes back. The court makes a decision as to whether the will is valid or not. Most of the litigation you see about like the fighting in court about wills is whether or not the will's valid. And usually it's reasons they're saying, well, Bill was just hanging out when dad was old and he got dad to change the will, undo influence, will should be invalid. Where usually the case is actually, Bill was the only one around. Um, dad doesn't like the rest of you anymore. Bill's getting everything. Right. <laughs> which, which dad can do. Um, um, okay, so that's that's what we talk about when like waiting for probate is waiting for that grant of probate, and it can take months. And so, if there's like really high expenses that need to be handled right now, um, and the only money is tied up with the bank, and the bank won't let you have it, that's a problem. There's ways around that, but but that can happen. And and you're right, Kim. Uh, you've got to pony up the dough, and the estate will pay you back, but like you're in trouble if the estate defaults and like you're taking on some of that risk. Um, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention in Alberta, the law, the default is 
If you're going to be an executor, this is basically everyone listening to this is going to be like, oh, being an executor is the worst thing ever. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. It, it sounds is. like you're assuming potentially a decent amount of risk. You yep. might be out some money <laughs> and you might, it, that might be a task you want to do for a loved one, but maybe not everybody has the time or knowledge for that. So why, why, why would you agree to be an executor if, if not in addition to a love or family obligation? Yeah, well, exactly, Heather. And, and it's funny because people preparing their wills get all cut up about like, oh, I want to name all five of my kids joint executors because I don't want one to feel left out. That's like the worst thing you could possibly do. Why? Because can't they just share the job and it makes it easier yeah, for all of them? Yeah, they can share it. They've got to agree on everything. Oh, how many kids do you have, Heather? Two. And, well, I don't know if they're old enough yet to have disagreements or do they agree on everything? <laughs> <laughs> they probably wouldn't agree on whether or not they have disagreements. <laughs> exactly. I've got, yeah. I have five kids myself. <laughs> I have like a situation, like trying to pick something to watch and they're different age groups. So that comes into play, but like, forget it. Right. Very hard. Right. So yeah, kids can't agree. It's, it's the worst. It's way right. better to just name one and then an alternate. Right. So um, if that person can't or won't, another backup and you can have multiple backups. That's really easy, but having them do it jointly. Yeah. That's like, that's like you saying, I hate you to them. <laughs> As a group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're not doing anybody a great favor by naming them executor. Okay. I think that's going to be one of the big takeaways from this podcast. Okay. Well, what about kids in different cities or countries? Like, I know I've had questions on exams I've written on estate planning and whatnot. And there, there are issues with having kids who are, let's say, living in the United States and administering a will in, in Alberta. Um, is there, yeah. do people bring that up with their lawyers or is it just, it just yeah. shakes out the way it shakes so out? That's a perfect segue to what the next thing I wanted to mention, which is, if you are outside of, if you live outside of Alberta and you're going to be the executor, and maybe this is what you're, maybe you're actually trying to pull this out of me, Kim. Um, you have to, the default law is you've got a pony up bond for twice the value of the estate. So, oh, yeah. Be Whoa. And the reason is the courts in Alberta only have jurisdiction over property in Alberta. And so they can't really come after you as the executor. Nobody, it'd be real hard for the beneficiaries to come after you if you're living in Alabama. And so that's what the bond, the requirement for bond is for. Um, so there's, it's a double-edged sword here because so on the, that law exists to protect the beneficiaries from bad acting executors, but it also creates an onerous obligation. And so if you've got a sizable estate, mm -hmm. somebody has got to come up with a bond for double the value of the estate that could prevent most people from being able to be the executor in the first place. Yeah, does that include the deceased real estate and stuff? So, you know, if you yeah. have a parent that passes away with a $500,000 home, you'd have to 
somehow guarantee a million bucks to be the yeah. executor. Mm, yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly. exactly. And so, um, most of the time in wills that I draft, um, explicitly waive that requirement. Most of the time, in oh, fact, okay. I don't think I've ever written a will where I didn't waive that requirement. Okay. Because people are choosing people they trust. Right. Um, and so usually they don't want to put that burden, that huge barrier to entry to being the executor. Okay. Another thing I wanted to mention is, we've just talked about all this liability that uh, executors ha face. Mm -hmm. There is such thing as executor insurance. And it's a standard, that's another standard clause in the wills that I draft that the executor is authorized to get in insurance to cover them. Because it doesn't just cover, like it, that guarantee, it's insurance, it's gonna guarantee the beneficiaries are gonna get what they're supposed to get. Okay. Right, and it helps, it protects the executor if they make mistakes and makes sure, sure that the estate isn't wasted. So, like, this are, and those are really good examples of like, mm -hmm. hey, well, it's just a will, no problem. I'm gonna go do one, I'm gonna do a holographic will, which we can talk about in a sec. I'm just gonna write it myself, like mm -hmm. that guy in Saskatchewan on the bumper of his tractor, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. done. Yeah. Why do I have to go spend $1,000 with a lawyer? That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I just mentioned like three or four things that are standard in my wills that you're not gonna put in your will that you write yourself yeah. and that are gonna have potential to cause real problems. Sure, sure. Um. Am I, I think I've heard that executors can get paid out of the estate. Is that true? Like is, yeah. can they be compensated for their time and effort that they do put into administering yeah. well, an estate? Let me throw that back at you, Heather. After okay. what we just talked about, do you think mm -hmm. they should be able to get paid? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it does sound like it's a lot of work. You're hiring a lawyer, maybe going to lawyer meetings. It sounds like you're probably communicating with banks and land titles and real estate and a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah, no, exactly. And yes, the law supports uh, executors receiving compensation. Mm -hmm. And the law provides a range that is generally acceptable. The amount, and I think it's between two and five percent of the of the value of the estate. Um, I usually put three point five percent in my wills and put it in the will again, so that it's right there. Nobody, because if it's not in the will, then guess what? The executor has to go either get it approved by the beneficiaries, and if the beneficiaries won't approve it, it's got to go to court, and the court will approve it. Mm. But you've got to go, and, and, and it's a hassle. Whereas right. if it's in the will, you don't have to get approval from beneficiaries. You just pay yourself that amount. It's right in the will. Right. And that's just more delay and more money that's coming out of the estate that ultimately the deceased wanted to go to their family and not to the court, yeah. to a court battle or court application. And nothing brings the best out of people like like administering a will, like somebody dying and leaving money yeah. to the kids. Like people just get insane. Yeah. They get insane. Yeah. One of the, like the most interesting cases I studied at law school was about um, uh, the foot estate. So like the guy that donated foot field at the University of Alberta. Oh, okay. That guy, he was loaded. Mm. And okay. people fought long and hard about that will. And it's like the seminal will decision. It's like the Alberta Bleak House, if there's any uh, Dickens fans and <laughs> our listeners. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and of course, like the, the part of the reason it was so interesting is he was living in Australia. 
Was oh. he? So was he resident in Australia? Was he? Oh. I think actually that was. I think now that I now that I mentioned that, I think the whole, the reason I studied that was actually in conflict of laws, not in wills in the states. Ah. Uh, mm, mm. Anyway, so lots of factors that we'll look at. No. So. Um, I mean, on that note, you've talked about executors. So that's the person that's sort of reading the will and carrying out the instruction. Then you talked about beneficiaries. So those are people that are getting stuff in the will from the deceased. Yeah. Can an executor be a beneficiary? Is that yeah. allowed? Yeah. And, and it's very common. Okay. Right, because uh, normally it's very common for people to name a child the executor. Uh -huh. their children as executor uh -huh. and uh, it's also very common to name children as beneficiaries right so, yes uh, the way it, the way it works is like i talked about you're paying all the debts and the taxes and then the next thing that gets paid before the beneficiaries is the executor's compensation okay yeah so that's in that order of operations kind of and then the thing. beneficiaries get paid out yeah. okay okay and uh, normally an executor, when they pay out the beneficiaries, is before they pay out the beneficiaries, they send them a letter reporting to them and saying, uh, here's a release. Sign the release and, I'll, and you'll get your check. Mm, okay. And the beneficiaries, if they're happy with their review of the accounting, they sign the release and they get a check. Okay. Okay. On the topic of money, I think our viewers would be happy to know that Alberta is a is a pretty good place to kick the bucket. Our probate is quite it's quite cheap in Alberta right, right now, just over five hundred bucks for a, a pretty big estate. And I know in BC and Ontario, they have um, there's a percentage of the estate uh, as a cost for probate. So estate planning gets a bit more cute uh, in those two provinces. Uh, as, as far as I know, Evan, is that your experience? So I've never done estate. I've only been in, involved in estate planning on the financial planning side in British Columbia. And it's a great selling point for insurance because, uh, Kim, you can confirm this, uh, but insurance... Uh, has a very special standing under as as far as tax goes in Canada, and so if you to protect assets, you can put them into insurance products and uh, avoid probate taxes in places like British Columbia. But I heard a rumor. I don't know if it's true. I haven't been following the le legislative goings on here very closely, but I've heard a rumor that there's talk of bringing a probate tax to Alberta. Mm. Oh, you heard anything about that, Kim? I have not, and I read a lot of financial newspapers. Uh, that's that would be really important uh, to know because in I'm kind of in the high net worth space, and people would do a, a lot more interesting planning um, if they knew that that was coming down the pipeline. Maybe multiple wills, like they use in Ontario, or more life insurance potentially that's fascinating Evan I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to watch a bit more carefully yeah I don't like again I just heard I just heard it from the rumor mill I haven't again I I, I haven't heard anything substantive yet but uh what a terrible idea and how un-Albertan yeah come on sorry I I feel like you guys were geeking out there a little bit so I want to back up that conversation a tiny bit so I think what you're getting at is that like in other provinces where there's a probate tax anything that's left in the will so like the house if that's worth five hundred thousand dollars you might get the estate's going to get charged a percentage on that when it gets probated 
why don't they why doesn't that happen with something like insurance does that not go through the estate or through the probate so i'll answer part of it and let kim answer the rest so okay. uh anything generally generally and it's like mm -hmm. I just read it. I just read a decision. I think I mentioned it actually in our last episode or the episode before this decision. I just read about. Uh, oh no, I didn't. Okay, I'll get to it. Um, <laughs> generally, when there's a beneficiary designation, and so this is things like RSPs, you can designate a beneficiary. Right. Life insurance, you can des you obviously designate a beneficiary. Yeah. Um, those, along with things that are held jointly. Like, especially in Alberta, when you hold land as joint tenants, mm -hmm. those pass outside of the estate and therefore avoid probate taxes. Uh, so in real estate, especially when the joint tenant dies, the legal fiction is that, you know, it immediately ceases to belong to that dead person and only belongs to the, the rest of the joint tenants or the last joint tenant. Kim comments about insurance. Yeah, you're bang on. There's one more thing that people use to get outside of probate and they buy segregated funds. So they're mutual funds that have a little bit higher cost and you can assign beneficiaries on those in money outside of registered accounts like RSP. So that's the only other little trick that people can use to keep their money outside of, of probate as far as I'm aware. Yeah, seg, seg funds. Seg funds have other little features built into them too, usually by the insurance companies that sell them and they're sold by insurance companies. Is that exclusively sold by insurance companies, Kim? You must be insurance licensed to be able to sell them, but you can, uh, advisors who are big investment firms or insurance companies, they can all use them if they have a, 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 any kind of provincial licensing for insurance. There you go. So, and I think probably seg funds aren't so popular in Alberta. Uh, in BC, they might be more popular for that very reason, mm. as an estate planning tool. Because yes, there's other tools outside of your will that I don't give financial planning advice. Um, Kim does. And so someone like Kim is a great person to go see for that part of it. Um, when you get a will done up, the lawyer's not really concerned with exactly how you finagle things. In fact, a lawyer will tell you, hey, anything you can just sort out on your own and change and update, without having it in your will, that's that's great. Right, less work on the back end, sort of. And yeah, For, and like, so think about the executors, the poor executor. If it's in life insurance, they don't have it to do anything. Mm. Buy the proof of death to the insurance company. The insurance company pays out to the beneficiary, done. Right. It's like immediate, right. I mean, it's not like the next day, but uh, I think usually within a, a month or so. Mm. Okay. It's fast. File the final tax return. Bada bing, bada boom. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's really good to know. I think that's um, that's yeah helpful. Okay, but I wanted to mention so because I, I I just read this this mm. case. I can't even remember what mm. province it's out of now. Right. Uh, I want to say Newfoundland, but I don't want to throw them under the bus if it wasn't them. It was. It, it seemed to me like the wrong decision, which happens. But the decision was basically that um, it was a situation where a, a, a son was on his father's bank accounts and some other things as a joint with 
So it's a joint bank account with the right of survivorship. Bank accounts have that distinction. You can say they're joint, but there's no right of survivorship. This was joint with the right of survivorship. And he was like helping dad out kind of like uh, you would with the power of attorney. I don't know if he had one or not. And he was not named under dad's will. And there was another son also not named under dad's will who wasn't joint on these counts. Anyways, the court found that he was actually holding that money in trust for the estate. Oh. So what that means is even though he had the right of survivorship that dad wrote and signed, the court decided nah, that's not really what dad wanted. Really what dad wanted was for you free to hold it for his estate so that it could be used to pay off stuff in the estate. So I think it's a terrible decision and I hope it gets over in, the court, in a court of appeal somewhere. Right. And it's not in Alberta, so it's not binding in Alberta, but it was definitely flagged because it's crazy. That's a crazy decision and would have significant ramifications across the estate planning world. Did you hear about that one, Kim? I think it might, I think we might have a form that we have to use now because of that particular case. So we have a gift form when people are JTW Ross on, on a, on account. So joint with rights of survivorship, there's an extra gift form to, ex to, to explain specifically that this is meant to be a gift for somebody. And it's pro we probably have that now because of the case that you're talking about, Evan. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's right. Because they were saying it's not a gift. It's he's holding it in trust. Mm -hmm. So, which is totally ridiculous. Come on, court in wherever. <laughs> oh, well, that is interesting. So again, I'm going to like kind of maybe summarize that or break it down a little bit. You're saying that dad and son held this bank account jointly and they explicitly said if one or the other one passes away, this bank account is meant to go to the other person. It's just that's going to be theirs. But then when the dad passed away, the court said, no, 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 that's not what they intended. What they intended was that the other person is still holding it for dad in the first place. Which yeah. is, yeah, it sounds like it's a little bit of a, a fiction there that they used to get there. Yeah. But that's interesting. Well, I'm curious to read that case. <laughs> kind of like, see that, how they got there. You, have you ever listened to Flight of the Concords? Mm -hmm. So they have this song called Business Time. <laughs> yes. And there's this line where he says, You said, Is that it? <laughs> I know what you're really trying to say. You're trying to say, Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's kind of like what they did here. It was like, Right. I know you said mm. that not only were you holding this in joint, but the person had right of survivorship, meaning they it's theirs when the uh -huh. other person dies. Uh -huh. That's not really what you meant. Right. What you really meant. What you really meant was. And I didn't read the case in detail. Uh -huh. uh, so maybe there's some more there that informs that decision, but it's uh -huh. on the face of it, ridiculous. Uh -huh. but luckily, as Kim said, the financial industry is already trying to do their best to make sure that doesn't happen again. And this is what usually happens when courts make a decision like this. A good example in the family law context is spousal support. People thought they think they contract out a spousal support. Court says, nah, you almost did but right. because of this. And then they're like, fine. And now all the contracts have to say this new thing. Mm -hmm. because that's right. Our spousal support waivers are three pages long now for all the all the possibilities, right? Yeah. So what about public knowledge on estates? I know in divorce, there's certain 
uh, uh, avenues that people pursue so that way things aren't public knowledge. On the wills and estate side, it's my understanding that people do some fancy estate planning sometimes so people don't know how much money they have and can't look it up. Evan, do you have any... No, I don't know, Kim. That is a question I do not know the answer to. Um, now, generally, in court proceedings, you can, uh, like I'm thinking about in family law, there are situations where you can have like a publication ban and, and make it, and they do it in criminal law all the time, especially when minors are involved in sexual assault mm -hmm. or, or just in general. They, 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 those are like immediately, like you don't want some psychos out there you know, getting enjoyment or something from reading about sexual assault or inspiring other people to commit similar copycat crimes. Um, and so it happens in family law as well. But the question is good because by default, court is public record. Mm -hmm. That is the whole point. That's a really important tenant of our justice system. Mm -hmm. So how to keep things private when you go to court, um, I don't know. You do two wills. So one will plays out a certain way with certain assets and that would be pu public record. And then another will, I know they do this, in, I'm pretty sure they do this in Ontario, and then another will would have different assets and then it wouldn't be part of the public record. I don't know, I was just, uh, I don't know much about it, but I'd, I'd heard this and never investigated. So I thought- uh, Yeah, no, that's a good question. I don't know if like you or I could just walk into court and do like a search at the surrogate counter or like through the surrogate court for like a will. Um, you'd have to know more, like you have to know who you're looking for, first of all. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what, would, what, what that would look like. So that's a, it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, in family, they've changed the search so that on family matters, you do have to file that form that you're involved in the matter, right? Lawyers have to sign off. People can't just go searching now for things. But I wonder if the surrogate court has done something similar or has always had something similar. Yeah, that's a good question, Kim. Not mm -hmm. sure. And after divorce... Do we update our wills immediately? Does divorce void a will? What's that scenario? Oh, such a great question as well, Kim. <laughs> so uh, part of that is going to depend on the, the separation agreement or whatever you call the agreement that is dealing with your property and everything when you get a divorce because you can put terms in that agreement that kind of deal with that so there's no emergency um, and you can deal with it one way or the other. You can say um, any gift made by the other in a will is no longer valid, let's say for like, I, I don't have the wording memorized. We say it a better way than that. Um, but basically saying, no, I don't care if my will says I'm leaving everything to my wife. This agreement is saying that's not happening anymore. Even if I don't change my will, that's not going to happen. Um, and you can also have uh, it say the other way where like it doesn't affect the will because if you're intestate, so there's no will, then um, there's important legal consequences to getting divorced and, and separating. And I'd have to look it up to tell you exactly what that, uh, what those consequences are. Um, but if you're, if you have a will, I think the default is the will still going to apply. So depending on what the agreement says, that can change that. But ultimately, 
If the agreement just says, no, any gift we leave to each other is no longer valid in the will, um, you have to look at your will because you might be intestate. It depends what your will says. So it's a combination of the two things and um, we'll, de we'll determine on how urgent that matter is for like getting a new will. But when you get a divorce, anytime you have like a major life change, when you get married, when you get a divorce, uh, you should be changing your will. Um, as your kids grow up, you know, things change. Like it becomes less, as they become financially established, it becomes less important maybe for you to be leaving a bunch of property to them. You may have other people you want to leave it to. Um, yeah, so I, I always recommend to my clients that every year they pull the will out, blow the dust off, uh -huh. through it again, make sure that it's still uh, appropriate for their situation. And if not, give me a call and I'll, I'll help them deal with it. I also try to draft them so that, um, you know, they don't have to change them ever if possible. So they, you know. I guess that's another question that I, you know, our listeners might have. How long does a will last for? Is it just good for five years or 10 years or however long it says? Um, so wills don't normally have an expiration date. Okay. Cause they don't even come into, they don't even, they don't even mean anything until you die. Right. Um, so forever. Right. Is the answer. Yeah. So uh, if you don't change it, it's just going to stick around there and continue to say yeah. what it says and be yes. valid. Okay. It's, it's really, it's a really important document to keep track of. Mm. Um, we talked about probate and, and having an application for probate in, before the court. Um, so this new, the will, Wills and Succession Act is relatively new. And one of the things that it brought in is this ability to fix deficient wills. So if it, first it, ident, it, it, it uh, defines what is a valid will. And there's like technical requirements and there's three different ways, three different types of wills that can be valid. Then it has these curative provisions, we call them, or provisions that allow somebody to fix an invalid will. And that's new to this new act. And so that allows people to take a, a will that wouldn't otherwise be valid and go to court in an application to get it named as the valid will and to get that grant of probate. Um, you don't want to have to deal with that. You want it just a valid will that is a no brainer desk application. Nobody right. has to go and give evidence about right. the person's intention at the time they wrote it. Right. And, um, Whenever you make a will, you got to destroy the other, the old will. And so you also want to destroy copies because copies aren't valid. One of the, one of the requirements for a will is that it's the original. There's only one you, photocopies of a will are not valid. Okay. Um, and if there's any writing on the will invalid. So you can't just be like writing on your will because now, now it's screwed. Mm. Um, so it's not just that additional writing that they don't look at that just invalidates the will entirely. Yeah. Don't do it. Okay. Don't do it. Good to know. <laughs> uh, so, uh, if you like, you could see a situation where you're going to update your will a few times in your lifetime. Maybe you've got three different wills floating around. Mm -hmm. The new will always invalidates the older wills. Mm -hmm. Um, but you don't want people to be confused about what you want to set out in your will. So like, I don't right, know. Maybe. Yeah. 
I don't Maybe. know my clients, like some lawyers do, or they did in the past. They've got like safes full of wills. I don't do that. They go to the client, takes them. They're my client's responsibility to look after them. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they, I take, when I'm doing a new will for someone that already has a will, I tell them to bring me the old will mm-hmm. copies, and I destroy them for them. So if you are, I mean, you go to a lawyer, someone like you helps you write a will. Um, is there anything else that a person can or should be doing to make it nice and easy for their estate if they pass away? Um, you know, should they keep a list of their bank accounts, their debts, their (laughs) wills all in one place, their life insurance policy? Like, is there kind of like some practical nuts and bolts bits? Because it sounds to me like Auntie Rose could like come into my office and maybe find, you know, will number two of five that I have and say, well, here it is. Stop looking. (laughs) Um, And that might not actually be my wishes. So... Yeah, that great, great question. Great uh, intuitive advice, Heather. Yes, that's what I tell all my clients as well. Keep a list of everyone that needs to be notified in case you die or that something happens to you because, again, it's not just the will that will be with it. It'll be your will, power of attorney, and personal directive. Mm-hmm. Keep a list of people that you want notified. Um, keep your most recent bank statement. It doesn't mean every month you have to go and put a bank statement. Just do it once a year. When you pull it out and, and blow the dust off, also mm-hmm. update all this information. Insurance policies, bank statements, any assets, information about where they are, all that stuff. Keep it in one tight little package so that then, yes, the executor will be like, I feel very confident. I've got all of the debts here, so I don't have to run ads in the newspaper because nothing's going to come of it anyways because this person was very well organized. Mm. Yes, keep it keep all together and um, once a year, go back and, and update that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking like in today's day and age too, where so much stuff is online, people aren't, you know, you don't have your big old filing cabinet with your bank statements and a paper stack. So if someone finds your will and it's great that it's all left to so-and-so, but what's all left to them <laughs> is the estate having like, they're trying to find all your bank accounts then and all your investments and yeah, that could be tough, right? You send them to all the banks. I mean, luckily there's not that many in Canada. Yeah. But yeah. You know, if if they, if they can't open my iPhone, I think somebody's going to have a pretty hard time figuring out where, where my stuff is. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and that that's another thing today. Everything is it's more and more digital. Um, I just wanted an update. I just I just found uh, quickly in the Wills and Succession Act about what happens if you're intestate and separated. So. For the purposes of if you're if you don't have a will, you die without a will. If you're separated, the separated spouse is deemed to have predeceased you. So that means they're they're out of the distribution. Even if you're not divorced yet, you're just separated. Now, lots of like I'm sure you can find court cases where someone fought about how separated they really were. Mm. Once he died, things or once she died, well, we were back together. Right. Right. Um, again, that only applies if it's intestate, because the will will, will uh, the will supersedes the intestacy rules in in the act there. Okay. But okay. Yeah. So let's talk about costs. I love talking about the price tag on these things. So I would say ninety percent of people <laughs> under 
50 years old who contact me for financial planning do not have a will. It is very common. The reasons they all say, I mean, a lot of them is, is uh, dragging their feet, but a lot of it too is the cost of getting it done. So Evan, I'm curious, uh, what can we look at for fees? And you alluded before to holograph wills and what a mistake they are, and probably will kits kind of line up with those. Where should people, what should people do when they don't have very much money? Well, first, I love your choice of words. And as a, as a linguist, I, I probably love words a little bit too much. But what is the cost? What is the cost of getting a will? What is the cost of not having a will is the same question, I would say. So the cost of, having, uh, of not having a will can be thousands and thousands of dollars. If, you're gonna, if your estate is going to have to go to court to argue, you're, you're at least going to be paying three to $5,000 at least, and run the danger of things not going the way that you wanted them to. Um, and if there's no will and, and they're just, someone's going to become uh, named the administrator of the estate, again, three to $5,000 and the estate's paying for it. Mm -hmm. So that's the cost of not having a will. The price that you pay for a will varies a little bit from lawyer to lawyer. Um, I charge just under $1,000 for a will for estate planning package. So that's a will, personal directive, and, and um, a power of attorney. Uh, it's $950 plus GST and disbursements. Disbursements would be in, in estate planning would be things like um, title search, which is 10 bucks per property. Um, usually not, maybe a corporate search if there's a corporation involved, uh, which again is something like 10 bucks. So disbursements aren't huge. It's generally about a thousand dollars. And if it's a, uh, what we call a mirror image will for the spouse or partner, which is basically says the same thing, just names are swapped. Otherwise the will's the same. Uh, it's $300 for that second estate planning package. So that's, that's what I charge. And I think you can find cheaper and I think you can find more expensive, but somewhere in that range is what you can expect. And I, I don't know, it's up to you whether you think the cost, which cost is higher. That's a decision that everyone can make for themselves. I look, I'm lucky, right? I, I was a summer student working at a law firm and got my will done for free. <laughs> I was lucky uh, and I didn't have one before then and I already had three kids. So actually I already had four kids by the time I had a will. Mm. Um, and I, like no property, nobody's, nobody's gonna be fighting over becoming the executor of, of uh, my estate at that time as a, as a law student with four kids mm. in the middle of gathering <laughs> student loan debt. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's really important about where my kids go and who's mm -hmm. gonna take care of my kids. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it strikes me that there's like an emotional cost savings as well. I mean, there's the part that you know that you've put your wishes down, um, but you're saving, you know, those people that you're leaving behind probably a lot of emotional yeah. stress um, at a time where they've lost you and they're probably already pretty sad, upset, and they don't want to be making legal decisions and court applications. Um, and that kind of thing. So yeah, you know. you're, you're right, Heather. I mean, we do, like, just think about the stress of, okay, mom died. Number one thing you have to take care of disposing of the body. What did mom want? 
We right. don't like. Did you want to be cremated? Did you want to be buried? Are we doing a funeral? Or are we doing a, a memorial service? What what, what should we? What one would you want? And then you go to like a funeral home, and they're like, "Hey, did you love your mom?" Right. Right. How much did you love your mom? Look mm-hmm. at this coffin. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't like. I don't want to disparage funeral homes. They, you know, they serve a very important service, and and uh, I'm sure not all of them are like that, but some certainly do. Some certainly prey on the grieving family to up that purchase to the nice granite obelisk. Because, like, don't you know? Don't right. You, don't you think mom would have deserved? Right. Don't you think she deserves the obelisk? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about yeah. cost to update the wills? I think that's called a codicil. What is there like a deal kind of thing? Yeah, codicils normally are, uh, are much cheaper. It depends what you need to do. Um, often, like wills aren't just updated like next year. Usually, usually it's like ten years down the road. In which case, I'm like, we're gonna do this from scratch because the laws changed uh, slash. The precedent I'm using now is just better than the one that was used 10 years ago for a number of reasons. We're just going to do a new one because it's just going to be better. But not always. Sometimes a codicil is suitable. And uh, yeah, you're looking at, I don't know, three to $500 maybe. And a codicil is sort of a uh, will add-on. It's yeah. like um, an like extra. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the questionnaire and then this is where all my clients seem to get stuck. They'll go to the lawyer, they'll get the questionnaire, they'll file it away and never finish it. What is the trick to getting the information to the lawyers? Uh... So I guess some people get hung up on the questionnaire. I'm thinking about my own clients or, or people that have called in and like started. Most of the time, it's not a big deal. And I don't know if that's because my questionnaire is easier than other people's questionnaires. Mm-hmm. I, I, again, I inherited that questionnaire from the people that trained me who were kind enough to allow me to take it with me um, when I strike out on my own. Um, so it's not like I, uh, I created this thing on my own. It's, it's been created for, and, and updated and tweaked for years and years by some people who do really great work. So, uh, I'm not taking credit for that questionnaire if it's a really good one, but, um, I, I don't know. Look, and, and, but what I can tell you is like questions I get about the questionnaire sometimes is like, why do you need to know all this stuff? Like, why do you need to know my assets and, and liabilities? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, well, do you want legal advice about what to do with your estate or not? Because if you don't want legal advice, then I don't need to know anything. And I, you know, you don't need a will uh-huh. from me. Um, but of course, if I'm going to provide legal advice about your estate, I need to know what is in your estate. Um, and that'll also help me flag things potentially for you to go see Kim about as well, or your other insurance broker. Uh, if you're not in the prestigious level of Kim's clients. Uh, what I mean by that is Kim's awesome. Not that you have, she only takes good people or better people than others. Anyways, um, yeah, so it, it allows me to flag potential issues as well. 
Um, and it's pretty comprehensive. So I need to know all the assets, all the debts, all the real estate that you hold, all of that kind of thing, uh, those kinds of things. I want to know your RSPs and your TFSAs and your pension and all the stuff that doesn't even go in the will. I just need to know about it so that I can give you advice properly so I can see the whole picture. Because um, otherwise I can't really provide good legal advice. Um, is, is that where folks are getting hung up on Kim in your experience is getting that financial, those financial package together to get to their lawyer? Yeah, it's probably very similar why people drag their feet on the, the property statement and divorce. They don't know where things are. They don't know what they have. And they just, rather than figure it out, they'll just push it aside and watch Netflix because it, it feels better. But um, yeah, I think, I mean, it, it is a good reason to have a financial professional you work with because I can, I can tell you from my own clients, I know where all their insurance policies are. I know they keep their will in the freezer. I know like all this stuff. So if they just come to me, I can just push the information their way and just say, send it to the lawyer. Here. My parents, my parents keep their their estate plan documents in the freezer. They're, they got this old school lawyer to give them a deal on it in their older age, and he told them to put it in the freezer. I don't like. Uh, I think that's funny. Uh, is it because of like um, fire? Fire, yeah. The freezer will last. Yeah, it, it, it's lined with lead. It's like I'm thinking about Indiana Jones, where he like jumps in the fridge during the, <laughs> the mom blast. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, I guess if you can't, yeah, if you can't have Harrison Ford take care of your will, then you may as well. Uh, yeah. So there's a couple of things that uh, I think are important to touch on that I question I get all the time, which is um, one of the things on the questionnaire is about a trust. Now, there's two types of trusts. Um, one just became legal in Alberta like uh, two, three years ago, called a Henson Trust which uh, is commonly have been used in, in Ontario. This is something that only applies where a person is a represented adult. Um, and so it's very niche. I'm not gonna talk much about it, but that's one type of trust. The other is you can't give property to minors. I tell this to my kids all the time. You don't own anything, kids. <laughs> it all belongs to me. Um, they can't hold property in, in Alberta. Minors can't hold property. And so where you're leaving property to a minor or who could potentially be a minor at the time that you die, mm -hmm. then you need to establish a trust. Your will needs to establish a trust. Um, it's not like a super complicated thing to do, but it needs to be done and there needs to be things set out. And so like, what's the purpose of the trust and, and how can the trust be administered and what can it be used for? Uh, you need to provide direction to the trustee, whoever's going to be going to be uh, operating as that trustee. And you need to name who the trustee is going to be or who the potential trustees are going to be just, and usually it's the same as the executor, but not always. Um, and, uh, what does the trust do, Evan? Like you basically say like, um, I want to leave my estate to my kiddos, but they're 10 and eight right now. So my sister is going to hold that money for them until, until they're 18. Yeah, like exactly. And when you're naming, when you're establishing a trust in your will, you don't have, it doesn't have to be 18. You can, you can set that age to be whatever you want. No, it's got to be at least 18 though. I'm guessing. At least 18. Okay. Right. But yeah. it could be 25 or 
Yeah. And, and, you know, you think about it, like if I do die and I'm leaving like, uh, $200,000, mm-hmm. Sally, mm-hmm. uh, and right now Sally spends all her money on all her extra money on Barbies and freezies. Yeah. Well, maybe you're worried she's going to go buy a car when she turns 18, uh, a nice like Corvette or Lamborghini or something. Really nice car. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, maybe you want her to get a little more wisdom first before she gets all that dough. So, um, yeah, it doesn't have to be 18. It has to be at least 18, but it can okay. be any age that you choose. And then does my sister get to just dole out the money however she wants to? No, no, no. Okay. Unless you, t- unless you say that, unless you give her that authority. So in your will, you'd establish those, the rules of the trust. Okay. And okay. the, the wills that I draft, usually it's, it's pretty broad authority because you can't, you don't want to, um, you don't want to tie their hands too much. You want them to take care of your kids. Right. And so you give them the authority to treat each kid um, uniquely, right? They don't have to treat them the same. Um, and to use the money for things like school, clothes, food, shelter, including buying a bigger house. If you need a bigger house to house your, all those extra kids, this kind of thing, the really broad usually, because that's generally what people want. You want to make sure your kids are cared for and you're trusting who you're naming as a trustee to do it and to still have some money left if at all possible for them when they're older. Mm, okay. Okay. I've seen it before with adults. Um, so my own clients, for example, would have a daughter who marries a guy they don't like. <laughs> maybe he's a gambler. Maybe, I don't know. They don't like him. So they, they yeah. create trusts to protect the assets from a divorce. Um, do you see, how often do you see that, Evan? Is that common? I've never drafted a will with the trust for that reason. But um, yeah, you, you could. You definitely could. Because now, that being said, Inheritances, Heather, as you know, well know, are exempt from matrimonial property division. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and family, sorry, family property division. Family property. That yeah. applies to more people than just those that are married. Yeah. So there's not a huge danger there unless your child puts it in a joint asset, then they immediately lose half of that exemption. Yeah. Um, and that's on them. Yeah. Or if they cash it out and put it in their bank account (laughs) and boyfriend spends it, I guess, then it's gone. But yeah. Yeah. In fact, I have a client who, uh, that kind of happened. She got a nice sizable early inheritance from her parents. Her parents are still alive and, um, had it sitting in, in, uh, well, used a big chunk of it to pay down the mortgage and then husband took a big chunk of that and put it in some questionable investment down in the U S that's probably the money is probably gone. Mm. So that's a, yeah. So that, that can be a challenge, but, uh, in Alberta, I just don't, based on the law, I don't think there's a, it's really crucial that you set up a trust. Um, but you could, you for sure could. So definitely important to educate your kids if they're getting an inheritance and they don't want it to go to the spouse, potentially not, they need to be careful not to commingle it with other monies. That's right. Because the minute you do, you lose half the exemption. You don't lose all of it, but you lose half of it. It's then Mm -hmm. deemed like a gift, like you're gifting it to your spouse. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I think what my wife plans on doing for our kids, I don't know if she will follow through on it or not, but like as an engagement gift, she's going to buy them premarital counseling. (laughs) 
Um, and she got this idea because she was listening to some podcasts and uh, someone who does this premarital counseling and, you know, something like 50% of the clients end up not getting married. Mm. And so it's like bullet dodged. It's not a bad idea. You know, we always yeah. say everybody prepares for the wedding and not the marriage, right? So yeah. <laughs> marriage. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. a bad idea to flip that around. Another thing I wanted to mention before we run out of time is another common question in, or preconception people have about wills is you got to like um, put in all the gifts there. Like, okay, uh, my Harry Potter collection to mm-hmm. Bill and, you know, etc. Yeah. Uh, pretty much I never do that. So very occasionally we'll name specific gifts in a will, usually not. And the reason being, if you don't have that gift anymore, when you die, it's not like, you know, like a house, for example, let's say you sold that house and bought another house. The new house is, is not going to be covered by that gift of the old house. And so um, that would leave, that has a possibility of leaving part of your state outside of the will and being intestate. And you have like partially covered by the will and partially intestate. Um, and also uh, then you'd have to like update the will more regularly. So what we do instead is generally um, have like a general gift of the entire estate goes to whoever. And if you want to go to multiple people in different percentages, then you set those different um, share points for each person and, and you, you divide it out that way. Um, and there's always an option to include a memorandum with your will, which is not legally binding, but it's, again, shows your wishes. And the testator is usually, or the executor is usually going to follow your wishes. And so we leave a memorandum with the will where you can set out like, I want this particular thing to go to this person for because of sentimental reasons. Um, and then if that changes, I mean, you date it and sign it and stick it with the will. And every year you look at it when you're looking at everything and decide if you want to update it. And if that changes, you can just get rid of that memo, write a new memo, put it with the will. Don't have to get a whole new will. So like really nice jewelry, paintings, things like this. Unless it has sentimental value and you're, you know, really confident it's going to be around, you, you really uh, don't waste your time putting it in the will. Just put that in a memo with the will. Okay. And you can leave those kinds of gifts to people that are not listed as beneficiaries. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Um, Okay, another another thing that people would not necessarily think of that's like just standard with a lawyer preparing a will for you. There's this thing called this form called an NC8. And NC is a prefix for surrogate forms where people are not contesting the application. Non-contested. The contested ones start with a C. An NC8 is an affidavit of a witness to a will. And so you don't need an NC8 is not part of a will. Uh If the will's all signed, that's Uh the will. Uh But if you're going to go do a court application about the will, you're going to be hunting for one of those witnesses to get them to swear an NC8. Oh. So obviously when you get it done by a lawyer, um, 
certainly I've always only done it with an NCA. Uh, I think most lawyers that do estate planning, I think all of them would do this in Alberta, but um, they'll swear an NCA. So uh, if I'm acting as one of the witnesses, then I'm going to swear an NCA to my assistant. And that affidavit, technically the will gets attached to that affidavit as an exhibit to the affidavit. And that affidavit is just um, a sworn statement that is, uh, it's like a portable form of evidence, like travels with the will. So if you ever have to send it to the court, you don't have to worry. That's one less thing you have to worry about. Again, it's about making it a little bit easier for the executor. Right. I've read a lot of my client wills, and I, I don't think I've ever seen an NC8 steepled in. That's very yeah. interesting. Uh-huh. Tell them tell to smarten up, Kim. Smarten up. It, it, it could be tough, right? Because, like, uh, uh, yeah. like um, my principal, the, the lawyer that trained me, he definitely, I, I definitely remember him administering at least one will where there was not an NC8 with the will, and we were, like, trying to hunt down the lawyer who, who acted as a witness and prepared that will, uh, couldn't find the, uh, the other witness. Like, they were moved to the States. Maybe it died. Like... <laughs> It, like, the, and guess what? The estate was paying for the lawyers to like do all this hunting around. Right, right, yeah. And, and it's not uncommon, right, like to have a, a, a staff of a law firm or something to be a witness, right? So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it could be for any reason, right? Like, I don't know how long the NC8 form has been around. Mm -hmm. So if it's an old enough will, maybe they just didn't, maybe it just wasn't common practice in the t at the time, but yeah. it is now. Huh. Let's talk about holographic will. Kim, you made allusion and I made allusion to holographic will. It sounds cool. I always just picture like Princess Leia asking for Obi-Wan Kenobi's help. <laughs> will holograph. But it's way less cool than that. <laughs> you're our only hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Help us, executor. You're our only hope. Uh, a holographic will is the term that we use for a will where a person makes a will all in their own handwriting. Nobody else is writing on it. It has to be all in their own writing, signed by them, dated by them. That's um, as long as it deals with the estate. Sometimes that's another thing that we that that has been seen by lawyers is a person does a will with a will kit or they do a holographic will and it doesn't actually dispose of the estate. What Which, do you mean? Well, they just don't do it. They don't give it to anybody. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. So a holographic will would be like, um, I, Evan Clark, leave everything that I own to Heather Malarick. April 29th, 2021, signed Evan Clark. That would be a legally binding, terrible idea by myself. My wife would not be happy. No. Uh, but she would, would probably not be your executor. <laughs> <laughs> nope. there, I didn't name one. That's the thing. So now you got this right. will. And in order to get up my stuff, Heather, you're going to have to go and get a grant of administration. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's what a holographic will is. And they can, like, I just gave a really simple example. You, they can be super complex. You can just write it all yourself and sign it and say it's a will. And... Uh, and it will supersede any other will that you have. And, um, you know, one of the challenges of a holographic will is, and the reason, sorry, the reason we have this in the law, I think is we made, I also made reference to that Saskatchewan guy who wrote it on his bumper. Yeah. So background, this farmer, really muddy, gross day, 
got trapped, like um, tractor stuck or something, got out to fix something. It all went wrong. He got trapped by his tractor, pinned. No cell phones, couldn't get anybody. He had like a knife or a screwdriver or something and he like etched in the bumper, which is housed in the University of Saskatchewan's law library. He etched in this bumper his will. And I, obviously it was gonna, it was really simple. I don't know what it said, but it was like, I, I leave everything to Julie. I think it was like all two rows or whatever yeah. his wife was, I think, or something yeah. like that. It was very short, yeah. And so the court found that to be a valid holographic will. And that's, I think that's the reason that we want um, to be able to, you want to be able to like at the last minute if, on, on your deathbed, you want to make a change, you can do it. You just have to write it all in your own handwriting and sign it. Right, right. Um, the other one is a military will, which I'm in the military. Uh, I don't really know what they're getting at by this because the military doesn't really do wills. And the, the, the military will that I had before I had my own will was just garbage. Okay. So no, that's the answer to that <laughs> just one. Just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then the other one is like with all these uh, technical requirements, which may as well tell you what they are right now. It's not that complicated. The technical requirements are there have to be two witnesses. The witnesses, neither witness can be a beneficiary. Um, and uh, can't be the executor either. Is this for the military will or the holographic? No, the real, the real will, not holographic, not military, the real will. Um, can't be a beneficiary. I just want to double check about the executor. I'm thinking uh, so that Heather should be drafting a holograph will right now. <laughs> We've determined she doesn't have a will. I, I mean, you probably haven't seen it, but I have been. I've just been writing out. Pull it out. Yeah, like, it's better than nothing, Heather. <laughs> um, anyways, I, I will double check about, but I'm pretty sure the executor also can't be uh, a witness, but I could be wrong about that. I would, I would need to double check. Regardless, two witnesses. The test, the testator, the person making the will, uh -huh. and the witnesses have to initial the bottom of every page and have to sign the last page. And then optional, you get that NC8, which is right. an affidavit that one of the witnesses swears, saying that they were a witness and, and they witnessed the, uh, you can download that form off the internet. Yeah. And NC8. Um, so those are the legal requirements. Um, and if they're not met, then it's not a valid will. And it would have to, the court might find it a valid will, but you're going to go argue about it. Right. Um, yeah. Um, was I saying something about that? I don't think so. Just, no, we were just wills. Yeah, yeah. talking about the different kinds of wills and. Yeah. And so be very cautious about getting any kind of a will kit because wills, yeah, anything to do with property in Canada is um, governed by the province. And so there's changes from province to province. The rules in British Columbia about wills are different than the rules in Alberta. Um, and same thing for all the provinces. They're going to be similar, but not the same. Um, and so what I just said about a will being valid, that's only in Alberta. Hmm. I don't know if that's the case in British Columbia or any other province or not. Right. Um, yeah, so it's buyer beware. It's like we talk about um, agreements, Heather. It's, it's the, the uh, false economy, thinking you're going to save some money on doing the will yourself because you spent 50 bucks on a will kit. Well, you got what you paid for. You got a $50 mm -hmm. will kit. Right, right. And while something might be better than nothing, at the end of the day, you're maybe not getting what you actually want. <laughs>
Yeah, exactly. And I, I hope that what, what we've talked about here today at least gives you an idea of why it's money well spent when you're hiring me or some other lawyer that does estate planning and you're spending $1,000 on a will. It's, it's not just a glorified version of the will kit. It's, it's something that's custom made for you. And also, like, all the things are in the wills that I draft because of um, years and years of estate administration and seeing what happens, what has right. happened on those files um, and the problems and the changes to the law and, like, ways to make sure that it really is going to be um, the best will you, that it can be kind of thing. It, it, it's not just a one-and-done type of thing. I Again, I inherited my will precedent from the people that trained me um, and, and their experience, they, they've had tens of years experience. And, um, I don't know that, you know, and all the influence that they've had as well, it's, it's years and years and years of legal minds. Mm -hmm. That's what it's a product of. It's, uh, so, and, and whatever lawyer you have drafting your will, it's going to be a similar situation. It's not just something they threw together one day. It's, it's something that's been passed down from lawyer to lawyer through the ages. Yeah. Um, and yeah. there's benefits to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've got me convinced. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to get off my butt and I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to get my stuff together and get a will. Um, I mean, it is the one, the one guaranteed way we're going to interact with the legal system. Um, all of us. So, um, you know, I think it does bring me some comfort of the thought that, if I were to pass away that the people around me would know what I want, that it would be as easy as possible for them. Um, and that it would all be taken care of. So. Yeah. Thanks for answering those questions and for getting you know, back I'm on glad, my to-do list. I'm glad I could help. And uh, yeah, I'll send you that questionnaire, Heather. You fill it out. Let me know when I can help you. And Kim, I'll send you the questionnaire as well, uh, just in case. You know, your clients are intimidated by a questionnaire and like they, they don't have to just use me because they used my questionnaire, even though it is a branded questionnaire. Uh, they could take that to uh, any lawyer, I'm sure, would, would accept my questionnaire. It's got all the information they need, so. I think maybe people just seeing the questionnaire might give them the confidence to go and get the will done. So a lot of times it's the not knowing, like the unknowns that stop people from doing things. So maybe we can get that uh, questionnaire posted for people listening in today and they can just Absolutely. have a read through and then, and then just tackle it. Absolutely. So I feel like we almost, I know we've been on here for a while, we'll probably be closing this down soon, but Evan, will, will you come back another time so we can talk about powers of attorney and personal directives? Because I've got a whole swath of questions. You know what, Kim? I'm coming back next week. <laughs> you don't have to talk about that next week, but I will be back here next week and every week. And so, uh, yes, of course, anytime you want to talk about those, uh, I would love to. Um, yeah, just say the word. Sounds good. And you know who, oh, sorry, go ahead, Evan. Okay, I just wanted to update about the technical requirements of will. So, um, what's required is that a testator makes or acknowledges his or her signature in the presence of two witnesses who are both present at the same time, and each of them sign the will in the presence of the testator. And um, it can be a beneficiary 
and can be an executor. So I was, I was wrong about that, but it's better if it's not, uh, simply because I think executor is less of a problem, but beneficiary, certainly that's gonna just raise questions about intent and, and influence. And so it's, it's definitely better practice not to have a beneficiary be a witness to the will. Um, the military wills, I just wanna clarify, uh, as I said, the military doesn't really do wills. They have this dumb piece of paper that you can sign that's a military form. But what it means by military will in the Wills and Succession Act is, if you're a member of the Canadian Forces, while you're in active service under the National Defense Act, that's a, like a, so that's gonna be a defined term. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but definitely if you're deployed, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and you can make a will by signing it without the presence or signature of a witness or any other formality. So if you're in the military, you can just do whatever you want and call it a will, as long as you sign it. So, if you are active service in the military, uh, it's the Wild West as far as wills go. Have at her. Does that mean they don't have to hand write it? They could type it and then whatever they want. Whatever they want. They can make a will by signing it without the presence or signature of a witness or any other formality. Any other formality. That's interesting. So I, I imagine that's geared at like those exigent sort of circumstances, oh, right? You might yeah. be in a situation where the end, you feel like the end is near and, and getting that down is better than not. So exactly. And I think they're just, they're just, the point is when you're in the military in active service in the presence of the enemy, uh, it should be even more relaxed than if you're on death's door doing a holographic will. Right. I think that's the policy reason. I mean, I didn't read that mm -hmm. answered, so I don't know for sure. But, <laughs> uh, but it would make it makes sense, right? That that is a special example where um, it's special circumstances. And just keep in mind that the challenge is always going to be if you don't have like the formal will. Um, it, it, the challenge is always going to be well, who's going to accept it as a will and improving it in, in a court application if it's attacked, right? right? So the formal will is always the best because there's all these safeguards in place um, and uh, yeah, and to make sure that that it's a proper will and there wasn't undue influence in this type of thing. There's all those safeguards set in for that purpose. Right. So that things go as smoothly as possible. Yeah. So that's my closing. That's my closing thought. Just a quick correction on what I was saying about military wills and the formal requirements for signing uh, formal wills is what it's called. Um, yeah. Any any last comments or questions from the peanut gallery? No, just thanks so much for sharing your knowledge about that. And I was saying during our break that I'm going to go and talk to my parents and in-laws now too about where their wills and all their stuff is um, so that, uh, you know, I can be prepared if and when something happens to them. Yeah, my, my parents, like I said, they keep it in the freezer and they named me as executor. And I said, thanks. Thanks, parents. <laughs> Well, at least not along with one of your siblings, hopefully. I'm just hoping, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm just hoping they, they spend it all. Yeah, right? That's the like, dream. For, yeah, because first of all, like that should be the goal anyways. Yeah. And like, yeah. Oh, we're all grown up. My youngest siblings are in their 30s. So, I mean, there's a lot of us. 
uh, but we're all grown up, so it's okay, mom and dad, we've moved on. That's right, go uh, have fun. Yeah, exactly, spend all your dough <laughs> while you can. And there's 12 of us, so like, so they save, so imagine they save $50,000, it's like a couple thousand dollars each, and you may as well spend it on something cool. <laughs> Uh, that's right. That's right. They'll enjoy it a lot more than than you'll all enjoy a twelfth of it. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Any? Uh... Yeah, I'm, ju I'm just sitting over here. All the little things that I I still have questions about. But I mean, we can't go. This has already been long enough today. But things about hiring trust companies to manage your estate or powers of attorney, personal directives, all this yeah. good stuff. Uh, I think we definitely will have to come back on here at some point and, and address those other questions. But today, I think, is a really good starting point for people who have a will and haven't read it in a while, who don't have a will, who have a holograph will, and they forgot to update it to a real will. There's just so many reasons for people to listen in today and, and take action. Yeah. yeah, and I think we should also uh, hear what you have to say about it too from the financial side because there's a lot of things there that we like we didn't even come close to getting into because um, you know there's there's so many things that uh, you can accomplish and, and plan that have nothing to do with your will. So. Yeah, you mentioned early inheritance before, and that's something that like perked my ears up that I want to know more about. And I'm sure Kim's got a lot of info about that. So um, yeah, lots of we put lots of pins in today that I come back to in the future. <laughs> well, thank you guys. This is great. Lovely to see you both as usual. Yeah. Well, this has been Access to Justice. So uh, come back next week. Next week on the streets and time. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallory Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallory, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Stole my heart from my lips. That was it.